Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods at the Early Adopter Research Podcast. And today I am talking with Howard Morgan of First Round Capital about digital transformation. Hello, Howard. Could you introduce yourself so everybody knows where you're coming from? Morning, Andy. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm Howard Morgan. I've been in this crazy computer field for 60 years. My first computer was 1959. Uh, I was a professor of computer science for a number of years at Cornell and Caltech and University of Pennsylvania's Moore School and Wharton School, where we were in the 70s and, and early 80s starting to apply big databases and computers uh, to various parts of digital transformation. We didn't call it that back then, but businesses getting, getting onto computers. And uh, of course, what we called large databases back in, uh, in 1975. Uh, are about uh, you know one one thousandth of what's in your pocket for, for all of you today, uh, and then uh, in the eighties I started in the venture capital world, uh, doing a number of different companies, eventually leading to the two that I'm associated with today, First Round Capital, which is the leading seed stage firm, which has invested in everything from Flatiron Health uh, using big data for healthcare, uh, Uber, which started in our San Francisco office. And also, more recently, as chairman of B Capital Group, a slightly later stage fund that's a partner with the Boston Consulting Group, which itself is partnered with a venture firm because of their clients wanting to do digital transformation. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about what that might mean, but understanding how that's affecting their companies. Well, this sounds like a great background for what we're going to talk about today, which is digital transformation with respect to the historical transformation programs and ideas that we've seen. What I wanted to do is briefly review, you know, what's going on with digital transformation because it's a, perhaps the most vague of any of the uh, transformation ideas that have come along and then go through uh, the history of the various different ideas that have been used for technology and business transformation and talk about what we've learned from them. And, uh, I think that will help us all understand, you know, what the meaning and actual implementation possibilities are for, you know, what is called digital transformation today. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the thing I'd like to start out with is the fact that, you know, digital transformation, the way, you know, most people think of it is really very, very ill-defined. It's not exactly clear what anybody means when they bring up digital transformation. And, and I've been studying this and it seems like you can think of digital transformation, everything as from a data problem. The idea is we have more data, we're gonna use it in new ways to, to use new things. You can think of it as an integration problem that you were going to take a bunch of multiple silos and bring them together and create more of a relationship centric or product centric or some other centric view of what we're doing and then expand that internal integration into an external integration of ecosystems, you know, and, and, and a platform that involves other people. You can think of it as cultural and organizational change, you know, where you're, you're trying to change the way you regard how technology is powering your business and the integration of, of technology and process. You can think of it as agility, just being able to move fast in smaller increments and move and, and get things done with a lot more evidence and A-B testing. You can think of it as business model. You know, how are you changing your business models to, to reflect what technology can do for you? And I think that at its core, what most people really have in mind is digital transformation as imitation. 
They want to imitate the successes that they've seen in Amazon, in Netflix, in Google, in Facebook, at really you know, creating new ways of doing business you know, with technology and new methods. Uh, you've seen a lot of companies that are trying to exploit this trend, both in your portfolio and outside of it. How would you define what's going on with digital transformation in the modern world? Well, I, I think uh, what I would say is that it is the understanding that if you can get all the information about all the things that are happening to your business into a database form, into digital form, you can then manipulate that in ways that allow you to then manipulate the real world more efficiently. Uh, spend less money in manipulating the real world because you have already seen through the data connectivity things that, that should be connected that weren't in the physical world and that were hard to connect physical world. But once you have all the, the data, you, you can put things together that you couldn't put together before. It could be in manufacturing processes where we've seen over the last 30 years supply chains collapsing because you have the information about where inventories are at your suppliers so then they can get to the Kaizen, you can get to just-in-time and those things, you, integrating the outside world. It can be transforming the way you interact with your employees in HR, uh, being able to provide benefits and information to them in an online way so more of them take advantage of, for example, better uh, wellness so your healthcare costs go down. It, it's a whole bunch of related things that say that if I have all of the information about my business accessible to in real time, then I can do things differently. I can create new processes and, and get the benefit of that. And that's both internally and interacting with suppliers and interacting with customers. I think that uh, I agree with you that, that, that the data is at the center of this. And, and my formulation of a sort of technology capabilities related to digital transformation has led me to a framework uh, of the following uh, structure. I think that really when most people are attacking digital transformation, there's a process going on that starts with evidence that leads to awareness that then allows optimization and innovation of something and then eventually is put to work as much as possible through automation. And all of this needs to happen under two sort of general properties. One is of agility to be able to move fast and, 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 and incrementally and get evidence. And then the final one is to also at the same time be involved in making sure that at every stage you are in an operations environment. You're not doing it in a skunk works. You're actually, whatever you're doing is actually in play and being implemented and being used, not uh, being experimented with. And, and that seems to capture most of the articles that I've written at a technology and capability level. At the, at the higher level, what goes on top of that, that's very idiosyncratic you know, and, and, and different for each of the uh, businesses I've seen. Now, that you know, brings, uh, you know, we've been talking about this general idea and, and I think that we've both kind of gotten into the ballpark of a, a decent definition. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to go back to some of these previous ideas that we've seen in past eras of business. And I'd like to talk to you about what you thought was learned in each of those eras. And, and the one that I'd like to start with is business process reengineering. Uh, you lived through that era in the, the, the late 80s, yes, early 90s. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, so with that era was, was one where we were just starting to, to get 
this integration of suppliers uh, and companies, for example. And so a lot of processes around uh, ordering, around supply chain management, around ERP, uh, allowed us to change the business processes that we were using. We, the, the whole optimization, and that allowed us, to, as, as you point out, once we were aware of the problems, to optimize inventory levels, to optimize inventory levels of, of, of working, working uh, capital inventory, working parts, cut down working capital needs. And, uh, but it took a long time because people had to look at their entire, manu- if, particularly for manufacturing companies, their entire manufacturing process and, and how that was going. At the same time, we started seeing business process re-engineering in the sales area where when we got tools uh, like the, the earlier conversions of the Salesforce, uh, we, we were able to now manage sales teams and, and salespeople and how they interacted with customers and uh, figure out how to re-engineer those processes to better focus the right salespeople on the right customers to see what the norms were, uh, to, to get better metrics to figure out who were, were good and not so good salespeople, not just by some numbers, but by a lot of a lot of more detailed measures uh, it, it, along the way. So I, I, you know that that business process engineering uh, took us a little bit of the way, but it was typically only around sort of one, two, two or three links in the chain from a raw material, whether it's data information raw materials or physical raw materials, to to the product and service delivered to a customer. Now with what people call digital transformation, they want to go the whole way. They don't want to just re-engineer a piece of the process. Uh, they want to engineer the entire end-to-end piece. And I think that uh, the, the lesson of business process re-engineering, which the way I think of it is, was all about, let's look at our processes with a fresh eye. Let's see what we, the way we could work differently and perhaps more optimally. Uh, and, and, and then let's try to implement that. And the, the problem I saw with a lot of the implementations was that the IT systems underneath it were just not uh, 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 agile enough. They were not flexible enough. It was really hard to change what they did. And then the, the software development wasn't nearly as easy and the amount of analytics and, and, and other capabilities were all much harder to work with. So you couldn't you know, create a halo of, of information and automation around the new process very easily. When you could, when you didn't require a lot of IT changes, you got tremendous benefits from this approach. But when you ran into IT uh, uh, transformation issues, it was much harder. I, I agree. And, and what, one of the issues was that w- when you had to put together separate systems, uh, when you had to put together you know, the, the purchase order system uh, and, and the, the inventory management system and so on, it was very hard in those days because you, you didn't have the, the large database capacities. You, you, had been, uh, you had gotten SQL databases, but when you tried to, to do joins on multiple databases, it was very hard. And you didn't have real-time information in many of these systems. They were still batch process systems, so that you couldn't do it in a, in a manner that gave you a real-time view of what was going on. And that has changed with the advent of, both data warehouse capabilities and systems like Looker and Tableau and so on that let you pull together a lot of information from separate, what are seen to be separate databases, but pull them into one view for management to, to help work on that transformation. 
Now, the, the next couple ideas, I think, are going to be harder to uh, discuss from a technology point of view because they were really more management uh, uh, practices, but I would like to see if, if you have anything to say about them. The next one is total quality management from Deming. Now, you know, Deming, uh, you know, had so many things to say underneath the umbrella of total quality management, but the one I remember, and I especially heard this a lot when talking to the automotive industry, was that the, the highest quality product was also the lowest cost product. And that there was, it was, it was really about, you know, focusing on quality at every level and, and trying to, to make sure that you, there was no stone unturned. That's the, the, the feeling I got from it. Uh, but uh, you may have a different uh, uh, understanding. No, I, I, think, I think Deming, uh, and of course he's a god over in Japan, uh, whose auto industry adopted it much earlier than, than ours did, uh, also led to the whole Six Sigma revolution. So both TQM and Six Sigma get at the same thing, which is that if you make things right the first time, then you don't have to go back and fix them and you don't have all the costs of going back and fixing both the, the, uh, the, the outputs, but also the processes along the way. And it, it also looked very heavily at statistical quality management so that you saw things were moving out of norm early in the process and using statistical quality management, which led to TQM and then the Six Sigma world, which GE was a gigantic proponent of and trained people all over the world in, uh, had a huge, had a huge impact because it really was true that if you made it, if you had high quality, then you could have lower cost and you had lower cost because you didn't have redos, you didn't have scrap, you didn't have wastage. And that quality came by, huge amounts of inspection of everything moving into the process, uh, huge amounts of statistical quality control of, the, of whatever process itself was, whether it was bending a piece of sheet metal, whether it was soldering uh, components onto a printed circuit board. But when you were monitoring the components coming in to be put on that printed circuit board, and then you were monitoring the, the, the welds and, and the soldering that was going on, and making sure that quality, then you ended up with 99 Point nine 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 nine, the Six Sigma, a percent of your products working first time out of the gate, uh, first time off the production line. And that was a huge savings because yields went up and if yields go up, the, the costs essentially go down. So I, I think that was a revolution on the manufacturing side. I agree with you. One of the things I think that GE did that was really important was extend the idea of statistical analysis and Six Sigma beyond the manufacturing world and to apply it as a general management principle. Now, of course, when they did that, you could never um, uh, do as well as you were with all the data in terms of creating really precise models that you got in manufacturing, but you were able to get a, a better view of what was going on uh, from the data that, that did give you new ideas and, and, and new uh, ways of optimizing processes. And you said uh, that this, this happened in a variety of industries. It took a longer time for this to be, actual, some, to, for this to be something that actually paid off. Yes, I, I think it started to be applied in areas like insurance claims processing uh, and, and in uh, financial decision-making, credit, credit decision-making, and where you, you can use the same statistical techniques, the same Six Sigma ideas, but it, it wasn't as simple. The quality control pieces weren't quite as simple as they were in getting precise measurements of a part coming in to make sure it, it was within spec. Uh, it, it involved people processes. It involved figuring out what the norms were. How long should somebody take to make this kind of a decision? 
what what factors you, you want to make sure that they look at. Uh, if it's an insurance, uh, a car insurance claim, uh, how do you make sure that they actually looked at all of the costs associated with fixing that particular uh, uh, problem in a car? And they went, they did the analyses of, of all the costs there. But it did lead to this whole Six Sigma being extended into the, the non-physical goods world, into the human decision-making parts of the world, and starting to then collect the data that can be used to drive that statistical measurement uh, for those kind of decision-making things. Now, I think that, you know, that those two things, you know, uh, uh, led in a way to the definition of the Toyota, you know, you know, production management system uh, and the way it was described by, you know, American academics as lean manufacturing and uh, with associated practices like Kaizen. And that, uh, uh, the codification of a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, created concepts of, uh, that were used in manufacturing, such as just-in-time manufacturing, but also various, uh, you know, ways of, of, you know, codifying standard work and, 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 and analyzing things to, uh, you know, use this lean process model as a way to look, again, not at first it was all looked at in manufacturing, but then it became generalized and led to stuff like, you know, lean startup and the entrepreneurial operating system. Uh, how have you seen uh, uh, that be, you know, that transition of lean uh, as uh, take place? And what, what do you think we learned from it? Well, I, th I think, uh, you know, Eric Reeves, Lean Startup, uh, the things that I've been doing and, and had, we did at First Round Capital and, and early startups really were uh, around move fast, build minimum viable product, uh, incrementally improve and, and do that over and over again in a very rapid cycle. And that started to be adopted by large companies in innovation, allowing their uh, there are people to start building uh, change, you know, changed systems, new systems, uh, particularly when they had information that they could use to interact with customers. For example, uh, one of the big uh, companies I've done some work with over the years is John Deere. Uh, and, and they started having their folks use agile software development in their finance insurance agencies uh, and uh, John Deere finance companies about 10 or more years ago. And that completely transformed how quickly they could respond to changes in the needs of the, the farmers and, and the, uh, the dealers that they had as they wanted to put out new financial products. And that agile, agile development and scrum methodologies and all, all of that meant that they could run through and, and test and then put into production four or five times a year versus you know, once a year or two year cycles for IT that were the norm before that. So it, it has had a major, major impact. Uh, and I think now we see lots of large companies have these innovation units, particularly with the advent of mobile apps and saying, gee, if, you know, I, I remember hearing the, the people at, at some of these companies say, I can do all these consumer things on my iPhone. Why can't I do this with our company information? And the initial reactions were, well, they're insecure, you can't do the security, we don't have an easy way to connect this database so that you can access it from, from a mobile device. But over the last, certainly the last seven years, that's completely changed and people realize, no, people are used to the, these 
systems that come out of the computer consumer world, and they should be just as applicable into the B2B world, and, you know, and, and we're starting to see some of those things. Well, just to recap, the idea, the way I see it progressing was that the lean manufacturing concepts, uh, you know, were, were abstracted in a way into like a meta uh, sort of form that then became, you know, lean startup type activity and the other, uh, uh, you know, ideas that are related to it. I think it's, it's probably accurate to say that the agile and scrum development methodologies that you, you, you mentioned, I think that they kind of emerged, you know, separately uh, as well. I don't think they, they generally uh, uh, saw their roots in lean, but they, but no. they use the same meta, they use the same philosophy. And they, they in, in a sense, uh, amplified the idea of, of, of being suspicious of requirements <laughs> and being uh, able to reduce things to the smallest possible uh, in, implementable chunk and then getting evidence. And, and, and that idea, I think, you know, is really what was eventually powered the innovation programs and made them much more successful. I would agree. I mean, what we saw, you know, we used to, we used to joke with Mike Hammer in the old days and his BPI, uh, business process guy, we would say that, you know, you, you'd go to a, a, a client and you'd ask for their requirements and, uh, and they'd say, this is, this is what I want. And you, you deliver them that nine months later and they'd say, oh yeah, that's what I want, but it's not what I need. And then you'd figure out what is, what was it they needed. And, and it would take two or three cycles over a couple of years for IT projects. Now you have IT projects where they say, gee, I think I'd like something like this. I'd like, I'd like a, a Facebook-like community for my customers to be able to ask us questions or a Quora-like community. And all of a sudden people say, oh, I understand what you mean. We can deliver that tomorrow. And you try it and you say, no, nah, that's not it. Let's tweak it. Let's tweak it and make. So you have that fast development. Agile and Scrum, as you're, you're right, were separate. But they they focused on how do we develop much more rapidly with smaller chunks. But all of that really is part of the growth and the ability for software and software development to change. And and we, when we change from sort of classic uh, COBOL C++ development uh, into development that really created reusable pieces of code, which was something we always had wanted and always talked about was could never do. But when you got chunks of code that you could reuse and plop in and you build things very quickly with very high level uh, subroutines, you could do development much more rapidly. For example, uh, one, of my, one of my friends, uh, uh, Mike Zisman, who was, had been very senior at IBM, after he left IBM, started a company called Golf Genius, uh, which helps schedule uh, golf courses around the world and, and golf scores, a whole bunch of interesting things. And he said one day, uh, he got a call from Europe, and so he called his, his programmers. He said, we need to have foreign currency now. We need to be able to take foreign currency uh, and not just U.S. currency. And the guys called him back five minutes later and said, oh, yeah, there's, they were programming in Ruby on Rails. He said, there's a gem. That's what they call it in Ruby. There's a gem for foreign currency. I just popped it in. We're, we're up on foreign currency now, five minutes later. I mean, it's just the, the ability to take code and reuse it as part of both which came out of both the Agile Scrum thing, but it came also out of much higher level language being possible. And they were made possible by much faster computers with gigantic storage. So 
you know, even though it was what we would have thought inefficient 20 years ago, when your computer operates a million times faster, it's not inefficient. Well, you know, and this brings up a point that I really wanted to talk to, to you about, and that is the idea of uh, how you organize larger efforts uh, that involve many different teams and many different uh, uh, programs. And, and, and Agile and Scrum really doesn't have an answer for that. I mean, I think that we can, it's pretty accurate to say that most of the digital transformation efforts that I've seen going are very much informed by the idea of Agile and Scrum or Lean startup, minimal viable product iterations, keeping things implementable uh, and not, not having everything be off in a separate area where you're not getting real evidence. Um, but what's lost in that, I think, and what's, what, what has been not really emphasized enough in the Agile Scrum community is that it's not like you iterate yourself to some perfect design or perfect product. There is still a design sensibility that needs to guide you know, where you want to go. It's, you, know, you can increment to make it better, but, but there, there has to be a, a larger vision as well. And, I, and Scrum and, and Agile have, have you know, addressed this in the idea of epics you know, and you know, larger structures that can be used to organize many different Scrum activities. But, but what I think is not appreciated as much is the idea that a design vision of what you want the product of ultimately to be is important, even if you're incrementally adjusting it along the way. Yeah, because without that design vision, you, you don't know what the limits are uh, for what you can pull together. And uh, so I, I would agree with that. Design vision is an important piece of it all. But I also would say that uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, that design vision has to understand what kind of scale you're going to get to because the, one of the biggest changes in the last few years have been the things like the Lambda architectures, the serverless stuff where, uh, you know, you, you, you build scalability in from the very beginning, you, you build the ability to, to, to go to massive scale, which most of the consumer companies have had to do, but we're now starting to see industrial companies having to get to much bigger scale than they thought once they allow their customers to get into the systems and look at their orders and look at where their order status is and look at all other pieces of it. So yes, I think that having that design vision is important. Now, I'd like to now talk about three other uh, kind of uh, trends that, that are mostly about that design vision, uh, that unifying sort of uh, attempt. And, and this is something that we don't hear as much about in digital transformation, because I think digital transformation is fundamentally about you know, imitating that, that rapid innovation cycle and you know, making technology and data more important in what you're doing. But I do believe that there is an, a, a proven a need for coordination in, in, in a flexible way. Now, one way of doing that is the methodology called the balanced scorecard, you know, where you set a set of uh, metrics that you're trying to achieve and you devolve that down into uh, you know, smaller metrics and uh, various programs so that at eventually at every level you have a unified kind of tree of metrics and, and, and goals that you're trying to achieve uh, and, and metrics that track them so that you can keep an organization running and measured according to a larger master plan. Um, 
have you seen that work well? And, and how would you say it relates to digital transformation? Well, I, 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 I haven't see, seen it used sort of directly that way. I, I do think that uh, at some, some companies like Goldman Sachs and a few other places where they have this broad vision for how all their information is going to be used and shareable across the organization, uh, they do have metrics for how shareable it is and, and, uh, and how much is used by which people and, and how they can create in interfaces so people can get at that data without really being responsible for the data. That is, there, there's a sort of groups that are responsible for getting data into the database uh, and then uh, other people who just want to be users of it and, and pull it back out for analytics for, for various kinds of decision making. Um, and there they want to measure uh, you know, the things that you, you might expect in terms of, of how quickly projects get done, uh, the, the, uh, the amount of iteration that, that, they, that they need, and the speed with, it, which with, they, which with, with which they can iterate. But, uh, so I'm, I'm, but I'm not as directly familiar with the balance scorecard method. Yeah, and the idea of it is that you have a, a vision that's an umbrella uh, at the top that then you devolve down so that you essentially have a design vision for what you want the performance of the, the business to be. Now, I think that that's been transformed and, and, and reinvented in the tech industry. And most prominently, I believe, through you know, Intel's uh, objective and key results, the OKRs that were introduced to Google uh, and used uh, as a way of you know, organizing and coordinating the larger scale uh, 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 efforts and, and, and coordinating across larger uh, multiple groups of programs. Uh, are you familiar with the OKRs and have you had any of your companies use them to good effect and, 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 and achieve yeah, very, very, Yeah, you know, very much so. John Doerr has his book, uh, Measure What Matters, uh, it goes into a lot of detail about the whole OKR process which he kind of pushed into, into Google, which has then spread it throughout, I think, the, the, the fast the small startup technology world, in fact. Uh, and yes, uh, OKRs are, are a really a good thing. You know, they're, in some ways, um, uh, TJ Rogers at Cypress Semiconductor did this 30, 30 years ago as well, in his own way, uh, with, in terms of creating OKRs at, at multiple levels that filtered down to lower levels and people had their objectives and key results it, the issue has been at Google and other places, they try to do some of it on a quarterly basis. You, you just can't do it on a daily basis. You've got to do it on, on big enough chunks that, uh, that it's, uh, it, it, the measurement time isn't taking up too much of your time. But it is a, it is a great technique. We put it into a number of our startups. Uh, and particularly between the, the, uh, the, the C-suite level and the next two levels down, really having good sets of OKRs that they have to meet on a quarterly basis uh, has been a terrific, uh, a terrific thing and for helping people understand what to be focused on and what to stay focused on and whether or not they're achieving it. And if they're not achieving it, why aren't they achieving it? And should it be changed for some reason or should they be changed? Well, Which is I'd, I'd like to dig into this a little bit for people who aren't as familiar with OKRs as we are. How would you describe what OKRs are uh, and how they're used? Well, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, what, what you do is you set a set of goals which have measurable, uh, uh, measurable 
outcomes for the next quarter, typically three, three to five, but usually three, uh, that if they're achieved, uh, will really advance the, the organization's objectives. Uh, and, uh, you know, an OKR might be to, to launch a particular product. Uh, it might be to, uh, uh, to, to finish some, some big chunk to get a certain size customer, uh, a certain number of customer wins if you're on the sales side. And, and then you, you look at what, what key results are needed along the way so that you can monitor it during the quarter and you and your manager go over those OKRs uh, at some regular intervals, could be monthly, could be weekly sometimes, uh, and then everybody in the organization uh, looks, at, looks at them all at the end of the period and says, which ones did we get, which ones didn't we, what do we have to change? But it keeps people focused on a few key objectives. And when they're doing something, they can always look up and say, is what I'm doing today helping me meet my OKRs for this quarter. And if it isn't, why am I doing it? And, and it seems to me that this provides that umbrella, that design vision for the organization in a way that is practical and actionable and can keep people focused uh, without having to have some massive, you know, uh, uh, document or, or some other method. It, it just seems to be a very simple way of, of expressing a, a design uh, uh, a, a vision for what a company should do. Mm -hmm. And I believe yep. that that's, uh, it's, I, I, I believe that the digital transformation efforts that I've seen uh, are weakest when they are talking about this larger vision and how to enforce it and, and attract it. I think that the OKR you know, method could be uh, profitably used in most of the digital transformation efforts that I've seen going on. Mm -hmm. Now, the last one I wanted to talk about is the uh, way that Amazon brings a lot of this to life in its uh, API and service-based structure. Um, you recall, I'm sure, the, what has become known as the Yegi rant that was a leaked document from uh, Jeff Bezos uh, many years ago uh, demanding that everybody at Amazon make the services of each department available to each other through APIs. And it was essentially a very strong forcing function in which the CEO pounded the table and said, I want you all to think of yourself as services. Uh, and I want you to expose those services to people uh, in using APIs. And that I believe the, it wasn't explained in the memo, but I believe the, the idea was to reduce friction and reduce prior restraint uh, so that the organization could take advantage of what e each part of it had to offer without uh, so much uh, uh, conversations and, and things like that. Um, and then that, I think, has led to an organizational structure that is based on you know, looking at the organization essentially as a bunch of services that are constantly optimized, evolved, uh, extended, refactored. Uh, and and it's, it's all, almost like a service-oriented business architecture. Are you familiar with uh, the way that Amazon oh, does oh, that? Yeah, no, I am. And, and I also know Werner, uh, 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 who basically created uh, AWS uh, as part of that, which is to say make all the hardware available uh, as an API, which led to the whole cloud world that we know of today. Uh, and I, I think 
that's been very important because it allows different groups to interact without knowing the innards. I mean, o- over the years, what, what we found in programming was you had a subroutine and how tightly did you have to bind to that subroutine? And when was the binding done? Was it done at, at the compile stage or, or was it, could it be done later on at the execution stage? And the more we've gotten to be able to defer binding, if you will, by having good, uh, clear APIs, so you don't need to know what's going on inside a root set of code. You just need to know what are the inputs to that, and you can take the outputs and feed them to something else. That's how programming has advanced from taking years to build things to taking minutes to build things. And what Amazon did, what, what, what Jeff focused on, was making not just the coding in that organization act that way, but everything the organization did, whether it was HR pieces, whether it was uh, acquiring additional pieces of hardware to run things on, whether it was uh, warehousing uh, goods so that both internal at Amazon, but they could also then externalize warehouse. And now you can store your stuff at Amazon if you're you're a a small business and you don't want to deal with your own inventory, Amazon will store it and ship it for you. And that all came about from uh, from that change, which was forcing everybody not so much to deal with every other part of the organization, because that would have led to chaos, but to create its interfaces, its APIs, that anyone in either the internal rest of the organization internally or later on, as with AWS and, and, and Amazon Storage, uh, externally. And that meant that you could really expand your company. And obviously, Amazon's done that in spectacular ways. And yes, well, you're right. I mean, the, I, I do recommend people read, it's, it's Steve Yeggy, and if you read his, his, uh, his rant, it's quite, uh, quite something. Because um, he compares Google and Amazon and, and how they did it, and that was really part of the key. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, what do you think the lessons uh, for uh, digital transformation are from all of these past uh, 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 programs and, and transformation methods? I think it is that the more you can encapsulate a piece of what your organization does and and have the, the uh, and then have the, it's the interfaces to that encapsulated piece be available to the rest of your organization, the faster you can uh, you can get to this total transformation, which is to say where your internal players, your customers, your suppliers, and everybody can interact with you in a very efficient way cutting down working capital costs, cutting down time, cutting down people costs, because, you know, look, I spend a lot of my time working for other companies. How do I do that? I put in information in their databases online rather than talking to somebody there who's entering it. Uh, I do my my ordering. I I, I go to the restaurant that I want to make a reservation at at 3 a.m. when the restaurant would normally be closed because Open Table lets me do that and Resi and so on. So I, I think for organizations, the more you can encapsulate your functions in, in ways that can then be exposed to the rest of the world safely, uh, the faster things uh, and the bigger your customer base becomes and the better your interactions with them become. Well, great. And so I think that there's some properties of that structure that I'd love to explore. Maybe we can do another podcast on about on it because I think that where we ended this conversation is the beginning of Ray Kurzweil's uh, uh, explanation of the exponential uh, growth <laughs> of technology. And so let's, uh, let's put a bookmark there and maybe we can talk again sometime. 
This has been a great conversation, Howard. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Thanks.